We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Chris Irons, host of the Quoth the Raven podcast and author of QTR's Fringe Finance Substack. Chris, how are you today? Hey, Tom. How are you, buddy? I'm okay. I wish I could say I was good. You know, Why is that? I'm watching, well, I'm <laughs> watching Rome burn in the background every day here. <laughs> Listen, let's, let me make you a promise, all right? I'm going to try to take this interview at least 10 minutes without screaming <laughs> or losing my mind, or cursing, or getting angry. But it has become increasingly difficult, as we were just talking off the air, that you know things get to a fever pitch in the world, and I feel like I need to unload somewhere. And that's usually when I call you and invite myself onto your podcast. So thank you for being such a gracious host. <laughs> well, it's always great to speak with you, Chris, because you know, as we were discussing before we hit record here today, it's interesting to both be kind of paying attention to the same things, but from different perspectives. You know, we both have very different backgrounds. We both speak to different people. So being able to kind of mull these things over or chew these things up, I think is always really interesting from just these, as I said, very different perspectives. You know, you, you mentioned this fever pitch and you wrote about a recent analogy of the stock market crashing. This analogy was taken from your, your recent watching of Apollo 13, where all the controls are backwards. And I think this is great because everyone has been surprised by the ability of the market to withstand the rate hiking cycle, this sharp rate hiking cycle of up to, you know, five and a quarter, five and a half percent. So what can we chalk this up to? And what did you get right and wrong about this time? Well, what I got wrong was the timing for sure, because I've been saying for two years on my blog, that the market's going to crash. And I've been wrong for two years. So I don't mind eating that right off the bat. I have gotten that wrong, the timing. What I think I have right is the mathematical inevitability that we are going to see a blow off somewhere in or around the market at some point, just by virtue of the fact that you don't have, you know, five and a quarter percent rates on the largest debt bubble in history without some type of consequences, no matter how much everybody is jawboning on national television about this soft landing nonsense, which, I mean, let's get real. I was reading Mark Spiegel's letter today, his January 24 letter, and he had a great clip from the International Monetary Fund in 2007, put out something saying, well, you know, the U.S. is going to see a soft landing in 2008. It's like, okay, how did that work out for you? So the narrative, we all know that the central banks are inflation apologists and they're liars. And to some degree, it's a confidence game. They can't come out and say everything is fucked, even though that's the case. I mean, you think about the debt spiral that the country is in right now, and we can talk more about that in a second, but it is the catch-22 and it certainly seems inescapable. So they can't come out and say that. They have to peddle this line about soft landing. And when they peddle it, it's, you know, the Federal Reserve and it's the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, who doesn't know what day of the week it is. I mean, this woman could not hear the damn dinner bell if you held it up next to her ear. 
and struck it five times. She doesn't know where she's at. She's completely incompetent. She has no idea what she's talking about. She's spending irresponsibly. These are the same people that have driven us into this debt spiral that we're in that are telling us, okay, you know, everything's going to be fine. So they parrot the line of the soft landing. That goes out to, you know, the financial media and the sell side desks. I was listening to one of your interviews the other day where one of your guests said, well, I used to work on the street. And I put out a note saying everything was going to crash. And they told me, retract the note or I'm fired. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's how the sell side works on Wall Street. If you're looking for somebody to tell you the truth on the sell side, you're going to be waiting for a very long time. And that's why people listen to your podcast, because you have people that are unafraid and that understand exactly how this whole game is played. So you can either buy the narrative that Scott Wapner and Tom Lee are telling you on a daily basis which is that Jerome Powell has pulled off this insane balance beam routine, the likes of which defies everything that we know about math and everything we know about common sense. And we're just getting ready for the big dismount here, Tom, off the beam. Wait till you see it. It's a triple, <laughs> you know, it's a triple axle, double backflip, and he's going to stick the landing. Just wait, you'll see it. Or, Wapner said a couple of years ago, he's going to lower the landing gear and ease the plane down for a landing. It's like, okay, you know, Tim Seymour, when Fitch downgraded the United States is on TV saying, well, there's just no data to support this. It's like, Tim, have you looked at our debt to GDP lately? So these people are not going to save you. They're completely clueless. They're spineless and they are cowards. And they're afraid to level with people and tell people the truth. So now let's talk about your question, which is, what did I get right and what did I get wrong? Again, I got the timing wrong, but I think I'm going to be proven right about the fact that something is going to give. I think the last time I talked to you was just a couple months after the regional banking crisis, which they papered over with essentially just more cash. They said, all right, here's more liquidity. Let's just pretend this problem never happened. A couple days ago, New York Community Bank Corps was the latest in the contagion from that to take a shit because it was holding some of Signature Bank's toxic assets. So it had to cut its dividend. I don't know what's going on in the sector today, but after the jobs number, I'm assuming that it's also probably getting hit again. So that will probably continue. You have a entire commercial real estate sector that has not marked its book properly you know, based on what its assets will be going for now. So that's something that we've been waiting for for years. And you have this two-year lag, which is essentially the time it takes for high interest rates to make their way through the economic system. In other words, if we hike rates from zero to 5%, A, it doesn't mean that your mortgage is going to go up today and you're going to feel the pain today. It means your mortgage will go up in a month or in two months or whenever the variable rate kicks in. And then from there, it's going to draw down on your savings a little bit more each month. And it's going to suffocate you a little bit more each month. And it's going to eat away at your discretionary spending a little bit more each month until you then got to turn to the credit cards. You know, the delinquencies eventually come maybe six months to a year after that, once you run those up, maybe a tap a personal line of credit, maybe a tap a home equity line of credit. And that whole song and dance and rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic takes generally 18 months to two years, which is something my fault, my fault, something I should have been more acutely aware of two years ago. 
and something I should have told my readers two years ago. You know, I've been singing that song for about six months now, but that's after 18 months of really getting the timing wrong. And I think that there was a report out a couple of months ago from the San Francisco Fed that basically said there was more savings left over from the COVID liquidity, the trillions of dollars we pumped into the system during COVID than people had originally thought. And so there's been a little bit more excess personal savings than expected. And the lag from monetary policy to the economy is taking a little bit longer than expected. But I always use the analogy of this is a time bomb moving through the plumbing of the economic system. And when it hits zero, it's going to go off. There will be no soft landing. Okay. It's just a question of when it's going to go off and where it's going to go off. Maybe the market will go up in nominal fashion, but gold will, you know, double in six months. Something will have to give, you know, or maybe, as I said on your last interview with you, you know, maybe the Fed will come out and cop to saying, we need inflation to be a 3% target now. Mm-hmm. That's something I gave you a guarantee of, I think, a year ago on your program, and I'm sticking with it. I said, I don't make guarantees, but here's one. The Fed is going to have to settle for an inflation rate above 2%, and I think that's still the case. So I think if you are looking for volatility and you're looking for the screws to kind of come undone here, the best is yet to come. And again, what I got wrong admittedly is the timing, but I think what I will be proven right on is look at our nation, okay? Look at how quickly we are accruing debt. We're accruing hundreds of billions of dollars a month in national debt. And then you slap 5% on that. And all of a sudden, the interest on the national debt has now, I think, eclipsed the defense budget. And it's starting to get out of control. Well, the same thing is happening to people's personal balance sheets and corporate balance sheets. And so, you know, I kind of thought foolishly, Tom, that we had so much debt outstanding. And I was using 2018 as a comparison. In December 2018, the market took a shit. But that was after two years of careful, gradual 25 basis point hikes that the Fed had spread out over the course of, I think, a little bit more than two years. And everybody remembers famously in 2018, the market took a crap. Steve Mnuchin called the banks for whatever reason. I remember it was like Christmas Eve. They decided, okay, they were either going to halt Hikes, or they were going to cut. I can't remember what they did. We'll just say generally they cowered away in fear. And then that kind of steadied things for a little bit. And then eventually rates dropped back to zero during COVID. Well, now we have raised rates like more than twice as high in more than twice as quick of a fashion. And so if you don't think we're going to have that December 2018 moment again, I think you're wrong. The question is just when. Again, there was a two and a half year rolling period of rate hikes before that happened. And here we've hiked rates, what, twice as high and 60% of the time. So, you know, hold on, man, because I think if you're looking for all hell to break loose, we're certainly moving in the right direction. And the cretins and psychopaths in our government have not in the least bit even alluded to the idea of any type of fiscal or monetary responsibility. They look at our nation's balance sheet 
and they look at how quickly we are accruing debt and they look at the size of our national deficit and they look at 700,000 immigrants pouring over the border who are, as one of your guests said the other day, all liabilities and not assets, right? They're coming and they're taking. They're not coming with them and bringing, you know, German bearer bonds. <laughs> they're coming with the clothes on their back and then they are taking from the system and not necessarily paying taxes. Our government looks at that and they look at our fiscal and monetary policy right now and they think they're doing a great job. And so I don't know what analogy you could use for that other than just nosediving the plane directly into the ground as fast as the fucking thing will go and doing it with a smile on their face. So I still think we're going to see some shit here going forward. Well, it's always interesting to try and consider the hubris with which they're operating under, right? It's crazy that we're in a scientific experiment. And it's like one of my guests used the analogy the other day, we've been thrown off a cliff and so far so good, right? Until that day that we hit the ground. Yeah, we think we can fly just because we're wearing a red cape, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting that you know you bring up this idea of the national debt. And it occurred to me the other day that there's publications like The Economist or, or some of these financial magazines that often mark the tops and bottoms in markets by kind of nailing the exact opposite. For example, yeah, like yep. when inflation was dead, everybody remembers that magazine cover with the dead yeah. inflatable dinosaur, right? So when they say... Yeah that $34 trillion in debt is definitely not a problem. We believe the exact opposite and expect this era of fiscal dominance to really start and take hold here. It's not even hubris, as you say. I think half of it is hubris and the other half is idiocy. When you listen to some of our Congress people, okay, when you listen to somebody like Rashida Tlaib, or you listen to any number of left, but there's also some people on the right that are complete numbskulls too. But when you listen to some of our Congress people, there's no hubris with some of them. With some of them, it's just idiocy, right? So I think with Janet Yellen, it's hubris, right? Because she understands how the system works. So she's got an economics degree. So to some degree, she understands how the gears of the macro economy work. And I think part of her thinks, okay, don't say anything stupid and just try not to fuck it up until you're out of here. And I think part of her thinks that the U.S. does deservedly have this privilege of having the reserve currency, which should afford our blessed nation here the privilege and the right to do whatever we want, whenever we want, for as long as we want. I do think part of her thinks that. And so I think with her, part of it is hubris, you know, kind of, well, nothing's gone wrong so far, so nothing will go wrong here if we ratchet up the debt to GDP. Thing is, you know, I know, your listeners know, your guests know, it's the same deal with inflation, right? Once the genie's out of the bottle, once the world publicly calls our bluff, once we reach the point of no return with interest on the national debt, Luke Groman has said this on your show a bunch of times, there's just no turning back. And instead of trying to be cautious and tiptoe forwards to try to be mindful of that and maybe even exercise some humility, there is some hubris. On the other hand, you just have fucking morons too, okay, like Rashida Tlaib, who proposed the trillion-dollar coin. 
I mean, you know, that was a couple of years ago now, but it just Mm -hmm. puts into an idea all of the idiocy that I'm trying to wrangle up here and what I'm saying. I mean, the idea that we can just print a trillion dollar coin and it's going to solve our problems is so stupid and it's so simple and so one dimensional and just so wrong. It's wrong morally. It's wrong mathematically. It's wrong from any economic school that you look at. And so that's just a dumb idea. So we just put that in the basket of just general dumbassery and not necessarily hubris. Because I'm not sure that if you ask Rashida Tlaib or if you ask Maxine Waters, who chairs one of the financial committees, you know, how does compound interest work? I'm not sure they can explain it to you. I think there is just a lack of aptitude when it comes to this stuff. And that's a dangerous potion, man. When you have a bunch of people that enable that idiocy because of their hubris, instead of stopping these people in their tracks, and you know, both parties are guilty of this. There are people on the right who want to spend more than we should be spending to. And both parties have a track record of kind of shuffling back and forth in how we manage the deficit and balancing the budget. But nobody's really done anything responsible because that would cost them their electability. But it's a very dangerous tonic that we are kind of mixing up here. And look, we may not see it, but the rest of the world sees it. And you can choose how seriously you want to take, you know, this BRICS stuff. And the fact that the Saudis are trading oil in China's currency here for the first time in 50 years, you can choose how seriously you want to take that. I know there's people like Brent Johnson out there who's going to say, look, the world needs dollars. The dollar's not going anywhere, and it's the cleanest shirt and the dirty laundry. And okay, there's a case for that. I understand that. It doesn't mean the dollar's not going to collapse against other assets like real estate, Bitcoin, gold, silver, tangible assets, commodities. But on the other hand, like, how long do you want to ignore the BRICS nations working together? Because they might not have the U.S. dollar, but it's not like they don't have resources. It's not like they don't have natural resources that they can fall back on. It's not like they don't have population. So, I mean, when you put India and Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, South Africa, you start putting these countries together, you're talking about maybe 50 or 60 percent of the world's oil production at least and probably like half of the world's nuclear arsenal tucked in there somewhere too so it's like okay ignore that at your own risk and so one of your guests was saying i don't know if it was your last podcast but i was listening to it yesterday about how it's going to work is they're just going to put all these things in place little by little by little by little until they got it exactly the way they want it and one day they're going to flip the switch And they're going to say, hey, we're just not taking dollars anymore. Or, hey, we found a way around the SWIFT system. Or what I think will come next, because I've been learning more about Bitcoin these last six months, what I think will happen next is like Qatar or Saudi Arabia or one of these countries is going to come out and say, hey, we're putting gold and Bitcoin on the balance sheet of our central bank. And that's the standard that we're on now. So good luck with everything else. And by the way, we have most of the oil too. Yeah, that's it, man. So, I mean, we can talk about how economically the West is losing its mind. We can talk about politically how the West is losing its mind. But 
you know, we won't know until we get past the point of no return. And then you might as well take the recording of this interview here out back and shoot it because it's not going to mean anything once we pass the point of no return. Well, a great point is that once we get past this, you know, once we cross the Rubicon, there's going to be no turning back. And I think that comes back to the other point of so far, so good. But yeah, you know, Chris, what do you think the eventual pivot? Because there's going to be a pivot, right? We saw the Fed come out in mid-December and completely change its tune. What do you think that they were reacting to at that point? I think that they were reacting to probably a lot of political pressure, a lot of pressure from the industry. I don't really know what they're thinking. I don't know if they're thinking that they kind of got away with murder here and they are going to kind of guide this thing in for a soft landing. I don't really know, to be honest with you, because inflation, you know, the growth rate of prices, growth rate of prices, not prices coming down, as President Numbnuts has referred to it before, right? When inflation comes down from five to three, it doesn't mean that prices are going down. It means that they're going up a little bit slower, but still faster than a target that we created out of thin air for no reason at all. That's what that means. But maybe they're looking at the inflation data and thinking they're taking positive steps. I would have to guess that and probably a lot of political pressure because so far nothing has broken. But I think what's going to happen, what I wrote about yesterday on my blog is an article called Expecting the Expected Unexpected. And that's the one that you referenced at the beginning of your of your show. What I wrote about was I think the market will crash when rates are being cut. I think that the lag from rate hikes will have kicked in. And I don't know what will come first. I'm guessing something will break and that will catalyze them to start cutting rates. And then I think at that point, it'll be too late. If you, if you go back and you look at 2008, you look back at a couple of the last sharp drawdowns in the stock market in the last few recessions, and I put a couple of charts in that blog post to illustrate this point that most of those times, the market was crashing while the Fed was cutting rates. And that speaks to that lag between monetary policy and when it shows up in the economy and when it shows up in markets. So if I had to guess, I would say the pivot is, I don't know, it could have been the treasury market. You know, I forget which guest of yours a couple of weeks ago was talking about how the treasury market is basically calling all the shots now. That might have had Luke something Roman. to do with it. Yeah, it was Luke Roman, right. I thought that was a very astute interview, and I thought he made a lot of sense because they're going to have to sell bonds. I mean, there's just, they're going to have to keep the treasury market stable. They which, Sorry to interrupt, Chris, but that's actually something I did want to get your thoughts on. You know, he said that we're not going to get a recession because of the value and the importance of the U.S. treasury and bond market. So how do you see the feasibility of that and, you know, that basic equation of no recession because of the importance of that market? Well, it could be the case. I mean, we could have a recession where, you know, it doesn't look like a recession. There could be a recession in pockets of the economy that might not show up in the stock market. We could have a stock market that continues to go up but doesn't keep pace with inflation. So it goes up in nominal terms. It doesn't go up in real terms. You know, we could have the economy kind of quote unquote, like hold steady and the stock market holds steady, but you know, gold triples in a year. 
You know, it's like there's going to be an outlet somewhere. It's like trying to plug up a dam. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no matter if the Fed wants to come in and do yield curve control and they want to manage the treasury market, there's going to be consequences for that. Right. Like think of how much money they're going to have to print to do that. You know, keep the treasury market under control. I mean, talking about a ton of money printing that's going to have to happen and that will show up elsewhere. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a crash in equities. Mm -hmm. Right. Look at what's going on with, I don't know, NVIDIA today, right? NVIDIA went up to 625 today. It's trading at some bizarre multiple of sales. I mean, look at companies like Tesla trading at 50 times the valuation of other automakers. Tech stocks are just in the stratosphere right now. The NASDAQ's at all-time highs. Valuations are through the roof at a time where cost of capital is the highest it's been in, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years, like, you know, so it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. But these are the kind of things that you see when the playing field has been so severely distorted that, like, could you imagine if the market was really free and not being micromanaged, like where prices of commodities and equities would be now versus where they are? Like, could you imagine if oil was a free market, what the price of oil would be? Could you imagine, like, you know, OPEC wasn't essentially in control of oil and Joe Biden wasn't trying to manage it with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? If the Fed wasn't in trying to stabilize bonds and set the cost of capital, like, you know, Trump Powell said yesterday, he said, we have no idea what the neutral rate of interest is. That's a quote from him yesterday. That came across the Bloomberg terminal yesterday. How? We have no idea what the neutral rate of interest is. And he said it like a couple of months ago, too, at some roundtable that he did. So it's like, all right, so what are you doing? You know, like, what are you doing if you have no idea what the neutral rate of interest is supposed to be? And your sole tool for managing the economy is managing interest rates. How can we expect that they are doing things the right way? And they're not. We talk about this a million times. All your guests talk about it. They're late. They overshoot the mark all the time. They're like using lagging indicators. They're just, they can't get out of their own way. It's like 400 PhD economists is like the fucking gang who couldn't shoot straight. And so it may not show up in stocks, but there will be recessions in parts of the economy. And there will be, as I have written, a blow off valve somewhere, right? Whether it's the price of gold whether it's the price of real estate, whether it's the price of Bitcoin, maybe stocks will crash if this contagion in the regional banking sector continues, if people have to start marking their commercial real estate books, if people just generally run out of capital and job losses start to accelerate and delinquencies go up and you know people start drawing on their 401ks and they can't contribute to passive funds the way that they have. You know, there's a million and one reasons not to buy stocks right now. The only one reason I can think of to buy them would be betting on some type of crack up boom or hyperinflation. I mean, there's no valuation metric that you could put in front of me to convince me to buy really anything. I think that the cheapest things, if you wanted to buy some type of equities now, would be the miners. Okay, because the miners are still cheap. Some of the miners are still trading at 12 times earnings, 10 times earnings, which is absurd. They generate a ton of free cash, especially if you think 
the price of gold is going to continue to move higher. The price of silver is going to continue to move higher. So they'll start to get more leverage. And I think foreign markets, places like Poland, emerging markets, the EEM, which is an emerging market ETF that I own, those things are reasonably priced. So if you're like looking for, for value, the utilities, I like the XLU. I like consumer staples if I had to buy anything, even though they're still a little frothy. But that's about it, man. And I feel like there is going to be a blow-off valve somewhere. And my biggest positions are gold, silver, gold and silver miners, Bitcoin, and then some of the other things that I just mentioned. Because if the market holds up, those things will be the blow-off valve. That's where we'll see the consequences. Likely what I think is going to happen is I think the market's going to crash. I think the consumer is going to run out of money I think the mar- and run out of credit. I think the market's going to crash, and I think the Fed's going to step in after that. And I think that if you're opportunistic and you want to own gold and silver miners and you want to own whatever it is you want to own, you got your shopping list. I think you'll have a chance to do it in that crash. And I think that once the Fed steps in, they will then kind of complete, they will circle the square of your investing thesis. If you're buying miners on a crash because everybody will deleverage, so they'll sell everything that isn't bolted down, gold, silver, anything that they can to raise cash, their homes, you know, people will liquidate. And I think that will be an opportunity to go in and buy the miners and the tangible assets with a limited supply that will flourish when the Fed comes in and tries to save the day with the market. And then you're talking, you know, I mean, we've already seen gold price decouple from real rates, which is a message in and of itself. But then you're talking like stratosphere levels. That's when I think you're talking the $500 an ounce move in gold, maybe in a week, you know, and then you got to remember, I mean, once gold makes its way to 2,500, 3,000, then all of a sudden, you know, a hundred dollar an ounce move overnight, you know, it's just, it's nothing, you know, it's not, it's whatever, it's 3% or something. It's not a marked move anymore. And so you'll have the law of large numbers that starts to kick in, but I just feel like gold, silver, Bitcoin, when these things start to get away, they're just not coming back. And this gold decoupling from the real rates, and I I don't know where I saw the chart, but if you look at a chart of gold and real rates, you can see that they have broken parity maybe a year or two ago. And it's just a sign that, okay, a new chapter has opened for gold. This is a new epoch for gold where the rules are a little bit different. And so that's why I'm happy to continue to buy miners now while I'm waiting for the market to crash. I have a lot of recurring automatic buys. So that, you know, I'll just dollar cost average here because I don't think it's going to matter. I think in a couple of years, the GDX will be, you know, I can tell you what I'm doing. I'm going out to, and I don't recommend that people do this, but just to give you some of my thought process here, and I'm going out to long dated calls in the GDX that have no problem going into 2026 and buying the $70 strike calls. Okay. This is an equity that's at $28 today. Because I just think that's how pronounced the move is going to be. And I think, I don't know. I feel like it's it's inevitable. I feel like Bitcoin will be in six digits by the end of the year. And I feel like gold and silver, I feel like they'll double. I, mean, I feel like within the next five years, they'll double. Silver, there's a lot of interesting theories about silver. Like one of your past guests says, hey, once it gets past 35, it might as well be at 200. I don't understand the thesis there, other than it has something to do with the paper market 
being completely disconnected from the reality of the physical market. And I've seen enough to know that these fuckers play games in the paper market with gold and silver. And so all of those things will get to a point of no return or one of these BRICS nations will help catalyze this point of no return. It'll either come from geopolitical risk, somebody calling the dollar's bluff or the Fed's money printer just, you know, sparking and smoking and going crazy and flying off the rails. But there's so many ways to win. I think owning tangible assets with a limited supply, because I think no matter what's going to happen, I think the dollar is going to get whacked. You know, the dollar may hold up against the euro, but I think against tangible assets with limited supplies, the dollar is going to continue the trajectory it's been on for the last hundred years, which is bleeding its purchasing power. So the only question is how quickly is it going to do it? And what's going to be the catalyst that gives it a quick push off the edge of the mountain? Chris, going back to this analogy of the controls all being backwards and in some ways us getting timing wrong, getting you know, a couple of these things wrong. Do you think that there's a possibility where the Fed ends up cutting and yet gold doesn't react or goes down with everything else as well? I mean, there might be. That would mean that it's priced in now, right? Mm -hmm. That would mean that the reason we're seeing gold decouple from real rates is it's already pricing in. The Fed's going to cut. We know the stock market has certainly priced in the fact that the Fed's going to cut this year, right? I mean, that has definitely been part of the narrative that has driven equities to highs. So why wouldn't it be part of the narrative that's driven gold to highs? Maybe like that could happen. The Fed could cut and the opposite of what you expect could happen because the market is a forward looking indicator. And that's part of the message I'm trying to get across in that piece, Mm -hmm. which is buy the rumors, sell the news, right? There's a reason that people say that it's because the market is a forward looking instrument. And so the same would go for macro. Once the Fed cuts, people aren't going to be looking at the cuts saying, hey, let's buy stocks. They're going to be saying, hey, what's six months down the road now? What's a year down the road now? Is it more cuts? Is it this? Is it that? So yes, certainly I think there's a case for that. Almost don't even worry because there's just no road, Tom, where the dollar doesn't continue to lose purchasing power. And there's no road that doesn't end in money printing. And that's it. The entire system is based on that. So then it's just like, pick your exit ramp. What do you want your exit ramp to be? Do you want it to be beachfront property? Do you want it to be Bitcoin? Do you want it to be gold? Do you want it to be silver? Pick your way to opt out because that's what's going to happen. And, you know, that's why I like being a gold investor because I can watch this fucking idiot get up in front of a room and say, we have no idea what the neutral rate of interest is. And part of me has a visceral reaction, which is like, hey, you know, you had one job to do and you guys can't seem to figure it out. So I don't know, like, what's everybody doing all day? You show up at 9 a.m., you leave at 5 p.m. What's going on in those offices? Is it just diversity, equity, and inclusion presentations from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m.? What are we doing? Are we talking about pronouns? Are we figuring out new creative ways to let migrants through the southern border? What's going on in the Fed's office? Are we buying S&P futures? Are we playing Tetris? What are we doing? Because if you can't figure out what the neutral rate of interest is supposed to be, you know, that's your whole job. (laughs) That's your whole job. That's the only thing that would be like me and you working in a bagel shop and somebody coming in and going, hey, let me get two everything bagels, one egg bagel, and one plain bagel with cream cheese. I mean, you're looking at each other and be like, we we don't know how to cook bagels. (laughs) 
What are you talking about? We don't have a bagel oven. We don't have dough. I don't have knives. I can't cut it. We don't have cream cheese. What do you expect us to do here? You know, be like, the sign says bagels right outside. And that's it. Like these people's job is price stability and they have no idea how to keep prices stable. They don't know, you know, what is an interest rate? It's, it's the price of money. They don't know what that price is supposed to be, yet that's their sole tool for fixing everything. Mm -hmm. So part of me has a visceral reaction, which is, can't believe I'm living in this circus here. I can't believe I'm part and parcel with this. And good Lord, like, what's going to happen? But part of me just sits back and says, okay, you know, hey, maybe the gold market will take a shock. It was down, you know, gold was down. 1% 1% today on the strong jobs number. Oh, okay. Does that change my outlook for where gold's going to be in five years, 10 years? Does it change my outlook for where I think Bitcoin will be in five years, 10 years? Absolutely not. So for me, it's just, you know, set my recurring buys. If it goes down, I'm glad I'm getting it at a cheaper price. If it goes up, I'm happy to continue to buy. Like your last guest said, people that are sitting around waiting for that $1,800 an ounce as a spot to buy, they're looking at technical indicators, they're looking at charts. Maybe it'll happen, but maybe it won't. You know, mm-hmm. And I'm okay with either scenario because I think over time, hey, here we are, Tom. We're sitting at all-time highs. What does an all-time high mean? It means that if you bought gold at any point ever, it's worth the most in U.S. dollars than it has ever been in history right now. So right now, we're at the top of the mountain, and that's the way things have gone, and that's the way things are going to continue to go. What happens in between there, you know, I'll tell you what's going to happen. We're going to make higher highs and we're going to make higher lows. Spoiler alert. And the price will continue to go up. So like your last guest said, this is a good time to think about wealth preservation and not necessarily wealth creation. I thought that was a good comment because I don't know, man. I feel like housing, something is going to have to give. I just, I can't see a situation where the consumer is completely tapped out, which is where we are now. If you look at delinquencies, you look at credit card debt, which is at all time highs and you look at personal savings, which are plumbing lows, the consumer is going to have to continue to try to come up with liquidity somewhere. Otherwise, how are they going to make the mortgage payment? You know, How are they going to live the lifestyle that they've continued to, to live? And once the quality of life goes down a little bit, you know, that means less discretionary spending. I don't know. Just don't want to bet against math. And to me, 5% on the largest debt bubble in history, just says it's coming. Something bad is coming at some point. And I will leave it to your other guests who are much smarter than I am to try to examine the intricacies of that. But I feel like for my double-digit IQ, dumb brain, that if I can just own some real estate, own some gold, own some silver, own the miners, own emerging markets, and own some Bitcoin... I feel like I have enough diversification outside of this system that if something breaks, it's not going to be a huge deal for me because there will be something that goes down 80%. And if it's not stocks and it's not real estate and it's not whatever, it's going to be an accelerated drop in the purchasing power of the dollar. So you just have to remember, it's like Jim Cramer says, there's there's always a bull market somewhere. <laughs> there's going to be a recession somewhere. You're just going to have to kind of look for where it's showing up. So Chris, you and I have talked about Bitcoin before. And, you know, obviously this is kind of a heated subject from the gold bug or the gold community because it has taken some of the attention away from gold when it's being called digital gold. And there's a lot of people that can't 
wrap their head around that idea. So you at a time were one of those people. So you've kind of come to understand Bitcoin a bit differently over the last little bit here, let's say the last six months. So what change occurred for you to understand it that way? Well, I just did some research, to be honest with you. I decided that two years or three years or however long of sitting back and talking shit without knowing what I was talking about completely was nice. But at some point, perhaps I should understand exactly what the hell I'm talking about or try to. And really, it's just morbid curiosity because the fucking thing just won't go away. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's 13 years, 14 years, you know, and I'm just saying like, man, like what like what is going on here? Like I understood it to a degree. Okay, I understood the basics and certainly I understood there's a foundation of the argument for Bitcoin that rests on Austrian economics. Right. So the nice thing is I'm already past Bitcoin 101 because the first course is about why the fiat system is broken. And we already know that. So, okay, good. So in doing my research and listening to the guy's name, the guy that wrote the Bitcoin standard listening to Sailor and a couple other people. You know, it was nice hearing their perspectives on why the monetary system is broken, but I understood those things. I think once I started to learn the intricacies of how Bitcoin works, you know, how the proof of work works and how the cryptography works, and then more specifically, the redundancy with how it works, how the network actually operates, I was able to kind of understand that the network itself and the way that the protocol is coded and the way that the network function is in and of itself an asset. And so previously, I would say, okay, well, what are you buying when you buy Bitcoin? You know, you're just buying a bunch of code. You're just putting your money into a thing and you're just buying a bunch of digital nothing. And it's like, yeah, okay. Like part of that is true, but as my understanding of how the blockchain worked and how the ledger worked and how the network has grown and the redundancy and the security of the network and the elegance with which Bitcoin works, you start to understand that really what you're doing is you're buying digital property. You're buying a spot on a digital ledger of the really quickest adopted way to digitally opt out of the fiat system, essentially. If you don't understand how the cryptography of it works and how the proof of work works, and why it essentially becomes more secure and more unhackable every day, the larger the network gets, there's something to be said for that. It, it's essentially, I mean, Bitcoin is essentially like a virus almost. That Once you kind of let it out there, it just kind of runs wild. And the more it spreads, the stronger and more secure it becomes. And obviously, more it becomes adopted. And so, you know, the fact that you can't make a change to it, people say, oh, well, how is it open source? And people just can't go in and alter 21 million coins, or they can't just go in and alter the code. And like, you know, that's, I was talking to my best friend about it the other day. And that was the first thing he said, how do I know Satoshi's not just not going to come back from the dead and alter the number of coins? And so I had to explain to him that, you know, like, well, you would need like more than half of the nodes and the nodes are global, you know, because when you throw something at the network and you change the code, the nodes puke it back. 
And so the more nodes that are running, the more redundancy it takes and the more secure the network becomes. And it's a very interesting, like network is a very kind of elegantly beautiful setup. And once you understand it, you look at people like when I look, look at Elizabeth Warren or somebody say, okay, like we need to ban this. It's like, good luck. You can't ban it. It's a fucking slippery fish because if the U S bans it, and they say, okay, it's illegal for U.S. citizens to transact in Bitcoin. It's going to wind up going elsewhere. And so it's already everywhere. And that's the beauty of it, is it can be transacted anywhere. It can be mined anywhere. It's decentralized, you know, which, hey, you have to forgive me. I know I'm 15 years late to the party here, but I'm just kind of like figuring this out. That, you know, if the U.S. shuts it down, well, then it'll turn up in Mauritius, or if, you know, Mauritius bans it, it'll turn up in Moldova. And if Moldova bans it, it's going to turn up in Siberia. And if just, Siberia. Just like when China banned it, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it can't be stopped. The only way to stop it would be to have, you know, either all of the core developers or more than half the nodes. And as the network becomes larger, it becomes more and more difficult to do that. And in loose terms, generally how the cryptography and the security of it works. So really what you're buying, what when you're buying Bitcoin is you're buying a spot on a digital ledger that affords you the ability to transact outside of the fiat system. And it really is, you know, Larry Lapard, actually his interview with you from, I think a year ago was the one that got me thinking about it a little bit differently for the first time when he just compared it to the internet. You know, it's like the internet. It's you really have to wrap your head around the idea of it being an entirely new network protocol that has just kind of been born, has been running essentially flawlessly now for 13, 14 years, whatever the hash rate, you know, continues to rise. The adoption continues to rise And the next thing that we'll see, as Sailor has said, is we'll see Bitcoin wallets coming standard on phones. At that point, you know, when Apple starts bundling it with everything and, you know, you have villages in Namibia that are buying Android phones, their first little, you know, shit cell phones, and they're still using 3G down there, but those have Bitcoin wallets on it. You know, the network is just going to become so immense that... It's going to be very, very, very difficult to uh, to turn around and kind of untangle. And so I think somebody was saying, you know, it's 50 trillion times harder to mine Bitcoin now than it was <laughs> when the network first started. And that's just, it's analogous to every day, the bigger it gets, the more secure it gets, and the more it becomes adopted. But really, for me, and for a lot of people, like I know, like for Peter Schiff, you know, the difficult thing is trying to figure out what gives it intrinsic value. You know, gold always has that bid. And I love gold, too. And I own way more gold than I own Bitcoin. And I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a metals guy first and foremost. But there's a bid for gold for its use in whatever aerospace, dentistry, jewelry. There's a bid for silver in, you know, in electronics, in solar panels, in pretty much everything silver is used. And, you know, that's kind of what gives it its properties. And for me, it was, that's what gives it its intrinsic value and, and thus its foundation for its, its property as money. And for me, it was very difficult to try to figure out what it was that I was 
buying with Bitcoin. Whereas now I did about 15 hours of real research, which really I don't think is enough anyways. But now I kind of see it as an investment in the technology and buying a piece of digital property. And I think what's going to happen is I think the Middle East is going to get on board. I just have this feeling that Qatar, Saudi Arabia, one of these countries is going to put some on their balance sheet, a la El Salvador. We're going to start to see more of that. It will, it will wind up on corporate balance sheets. And I think that the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is, there's something to think about is once the price moves higher, which inevitably will, because the dollar will continue to drop in value. Once the price moves higher, you're going to see all these institutions that are going to have to, like there is going to be FOMO in Bitcoin that's going to make the GameStop fiasco look like nothing, I think. Because, you know, now the SEC has kind of tacitly given it its blessing by allowing the ETFs, right? Which, and now of course you see Franklin Templeton and Fidelity putting out commercials, opt out of the monetary system, buy the Bitcoin ETF. It's like, oh fuck, all right. Now they have a product they can sell. Like they're super stoked on it. But what I, what I think you're going to see is once the price starts to move higher, 80,000, 100,000, I think it'll hit 100,000 this year. Once the price moves higher, you're going to have a lot of people turning back to their wealth advisors saying, why didn't we have any of this? Why did we only have 1% of this? And I think that the trillions of dollars in assets that can now pour into Bitcoin via the ETFs that couldn't do it before will do that. And then I think corporate balance sheets come next. And I think sovereign balance sheets will come after that. And I don't know, barring... Look, I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that are stoked on Bitcoin. So I try to figure out what are the biggest risks. And I don't know if this is true or not, but somebody told me the other day, well, Sailor thinks that the biggest risks would be, you know, the core developers turning and wanting to change something. So I say, okay, you know, but like barring that and barring the other big risk is quantum computing, you know, is, is the SHA-256 cryptography going to fall at the hands of quantum computing. And from the little bit of research I've done on that, that doesn't necessarily look like it's an imminent threat either. And so this thing continues to chug along the way that it's been doing. The other nice thing is the more countries that put it on their balance sheet, the more people that own it, broader the network becomes, the bigger the community becomes, the more people have a vested interest in preserving it. And so... You know, I do think it is in some respects a game of psychology, too. I do think in some respects there is an element of, you know, you're buying it because you think it's going to go up in price. But I think the inability to create new supply offsets that. Because I think like, so like to look at like GameStop, for instance, when that went to $300 a share or like AMC, when that went to 50, right? The head goon at the top of that company said, all right, well, this is a great spot to go and raise whatever, $5 billion and write the balance sheet of the company. And, you know, so what did they do? They came in, they issued new shares and management granted themselves options. And that has like a dilutive effect. You know, with the way that Bitcoin functions with the continued halvings and the limited supply and the essentially like inverted asymptote in terms of how many coins are being produced. There's just none of that. 
So FOMO will really be FOMO. And there will be a lot of volatility in the price, and it will probably overshoot the mark higher and then overshoot the mark lower, as I think it's done before. But FOMO will be a little bit different in Bitcoin because there's no way to come in and just create new supply out of thin air. And that's not up to Elizabeth Warren, and it's not up to Mohammed bin Salman, and it's not up to Vladimir Putin, and it's not up to anybody other than the 15,000 people that are running full nodes right now. And good luck finding 7,501 of those to run the code that you want to run instead of running the Bitcoin code. Mm -hmm. So there is some elegance to it. And specifically in, in its redundancy that I find appealing. And then, then on top of that, now that I've kind of addressed what my main concern is, then you can talk about all the other benefits that everybody else brings up. Namely, that it is, you know, it's, it goes everywhere with you because it's digital, because it's digital money. It goes everywhere with you, you know? So people make the thing, well, gold, you know, how am I going to get $5 million in gold from here to Costa Rica? when the shit hits the fan and I, and I want to leave, you know, and then, and then how am I going to get it sold? And so there are some advantages in terms of you have your Bitcoin with you really wherever you go, you have your wallet and you have your keys and, and your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin, whether you're in Madrid or whether you're on the international space station. And this, there's, there is something to be said about that. So I think about it more as an innovation and an invention, the invention of digital scarcity, the invention of, network and because there is so much redundancy built into it and because adoption continues to rise i don't know to me it just seems at least for the short term at least for the next few years you know i see adoption growing it's a tough trying to turn around the titanic mm-hmm. you know you don't you don't just take a 180 and say okay like everybody's done with bitcoin especially because of the way the network functions is you need buy in from everybody everywhere on the network and that's like, that's like saying you need to shut down half of the internet globally. You know, it's like, all right, how do we get half of the internet nodes shut down? Not just the PCs, but everything else that's connected to the internet, the coffee makers and the fucking garage door openers. And like, how could you do it? Could you shut down half of the internet if you needed to? Could you get half of the internet to run on a different protocol than TCP IP? Maybe, but probably not. And Bitcoin right now is, you know, backed by the most computing power in the world. Like the Bitcoin network is the strongest network in the world. And so for me, it makes it, you know, if the government wants to come in and hack the network and hijack it, they can't. If certainly an individual can't. I mean, it would take a, it would take a consortium of, you know, almost be unthinkable. Like I said before, it's a virus. Like the more it spreads, the more secure it becomes. And the more it solidifies its place. And so as long as those trends keep moving in that direction, I don't want to be on the other side of it. Chris, I think you brought up a good point is that you're not only wedded to the old ways of thinking, right? You're open to this new information, whether that be Bitcoin, whatever it's going to be. And I think that's the important part here is to try to understand these other assets And definitely not saying that this is the new direction. Everybody should head a hundred percent and abandon all of these, all of these other things, you know, whether that be gold, whether it be miners, whatever it is, but it's just another avenue to, I remember using the analogy of 
having multiple buckets to catch some of the liquidity that the Fed is raining down, right? Exactly. Um, that's exactly right. Yep. So I think that that's the important part about that. You know, all of the details aside, again, the important part is to just, in a way, be open-minded to understanding these new innovations. Well, you have to, and I can't listen to your show, and I can't listen to people like Luke Groman, who I know is 10 times smarter than I'll ever be. I can't listen to somebody like Lynn Alden, who I know is 10 times smarter than I'll ever be. I can't listen to somebody like Larry Lepard, who I know is 10 times smarter than I'll ever be. I can't listen to those people talk about why they're allocating assets to Bitcoin and look myself in the mirror when I know I'm just sitting back casually kind of throwing out, hey, this is bullshit. Hey, this doesn't work, especially (laughs) when the thing's not going away. You know what I mean? Like it went down to 16,000 and then now it's back up to 45,000. You can say whatever you want. Tether, stable coins, it's being manipulated, this, that, the other. Me and you already talked about the the crypto winter that happened. We knew that was going to happen. We knew Celsius was going to go under. We knew FTX was going to go under. There's probably more of that shit to come. All of the altcoins, I don't want anything to do with any of them. But the underlying granddaddy of them all is still there. And I couldn't go one more day and listen to these people I knew were smarter than me talk about why they want to own it without thinking to myself, they have to know something that I don't. I know they've done more research than I have because I haven't done as much, I think, as I should have. And I did. And it consisted of, I'm not even joking, consisted of about 15 hours of podcasts and videos just learning how it works mm-hmm. and it's not easy reading and it's not easy listening but once you get it you get it. i'm lucky i had you know i'm not the dumbest guy in the world when it comes to technology went to school as a computer science major i promptly changed my major after a quarter because i was more interested in drinking beer than i was in programming but i understood it and i watched these like you know for dummies videos it took about 15 hours and i said okay Now I understand why this network is kind of, there really is an elegance to it. And I text Larry Lepard as soon as I got it. I said, okay, like this thing's a little bit sexier than I thought it was. It just is in the way that it works in the way that it was launched. You know, there was no ICO. There was no, you know, a lot of people speculate that Satoshi is dead, that his coins will never wind up being moved. And that's just, there really is... There's a stroke of elegance to the way that it works that I just just kind of charmed me in a way. And I, that's what I text Larry. I said, yeah, this thing's a little bit sexier than I thought. But yeah, I couldn't listen to all these smart people talk about why they own it and sit back and be like, well, you know, I'm right. Because, you know, in this case, it turns out I wasn't right. And the way that I thought about it has changed. And I don't mind that, man. I'll sit around and tell you I'm an idiot all day. One thing I won't tell you is that I won't listen to both sides of the story and then make up my own mind accordingly. Bitcoin, I did it probably a little bit longer than I, than I should have. And, uh, you know, everybody says you get it at the price that you deserve. So maybe it goes to zero. Maybe it goes to a million. I don't know, but that's the way I'm thinking about it now. And not ashamed to admit that, you know, I was being lazy with my, with my due diligence, but gold and silver and the miners are still loves of my life, man. They are a number one for me right now. The, the miners are the cheapest when it comes to equities. I just think, I don't think there's going to be a lot of central banks out there that put Bitcoin on their balance sheet that don't also own, you know, five times as much gold. I think gold will be the king. It's been the king for 5,000 years. 
may not come out of the gates and make you 140% in a year like Bitcoin will. But gold is a very steady hand that I love. I will buy at any price. You know, if gold went to 3000 tomorrow or if it went to 1000 tomorrow, I would continue to buy. feel this kind of the same way about Bitcoin, too. I feel like if it went to 80000 tomorrow, I'd keep my recurring buy. If it went down to 20000 I would probably up my recurring buy a little bit. So you feel like you know you have confidence when you can say that about uh, about pricing. And I'm, and I'm thinking long term. You know, I'm not thinking about trying to flip something for a quick trade. I'm trying to think about like, well, where can I just continue to dump my money and store my wealth where, you know, it's going to serve me well for many years to come. So I know you talked to a guy like Larry, he's 50-50, gold and Bitcoin. My allocation would probably be more like 75-25 right now, which is probably the highest I think it's ever been for me. I think more in the past, maybe I was more 90-10. So that's where I'm at now. So Chris, is there anything else that you're kind of keeping your eyes peeled for going the end further of the, into this year? <laughs> the end, I'm, I'm keeping my eyes peeled for the end of the world. I honestly, I don't know how to say that in a way. I mean, I really don't know what's going on. You know, just, I can't think about it too much because if I do, I'll drive myself mad. Obviously, I'm going to be watching the election this year. I was encouraged by what happened in Argentina with the election of Javier Malay. I thought that was a huge win. And I think Argentina is going to be a shining example of what libertarian principles and liberty and small government can do for a country. So I would be paying very close attention to Argentina. I thought that was a huge win. I hope we have that same type of revolution here in our country, Canada as well. I see Pierre Polyev actually is polling very well in Canada. I like Pierre Polyev a lot. He's obviously the closest analog to somebody like Javier Malay in Canada. You look at the people in power now, and if you see anything other than complete psychopaths, I have no idea what you're looking at. I mean, we have people that are painting with a very broad brush that think that they know what's best for everybody that are really unilaterally and single-handedly driving the West directly into the ground. And you watch somebody like Justin Trudeau, and if you think that that guy has the answer for everybody in the country, or really, you know, he, he'll tell you probably he's got the answer for everybody in the world. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely frightening. And that's how you wind up with French farmers spraying horse shit on the Elysee Palace in France, because they've had enough. Okay, the point has come to where the farmers are dumping manure in the streets in front of the glamorous Elysee Palace. Oh, Emmanuel Macron lives in the glamorous Elysee Palace. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it majestic? Here's a nice big dump truck full of horse shit. Okay, and by the way, just as a reminder, you're outnumbered. Right. And that's that's what we see is going on. Right. We're seeing a reminder here that the very few who are in power are outnumbered by the rest of us. And so if you could please stop pissing us off, we would all really appreciate it, I think, is the message that the farmers are trying to uh, to give Macron. And I think certainly, obviously, in Canada with with what happened with the truckers, like, you know, it's the same thing. And what did this guy do? He cut off their bank accounts, you know, like, oh, we have lost our way completely. We are mutilating children. 
you know, at the age of 11, 10, we're giving them puberty blockers. We're, as Jordan Peterson would say, we're carving them up. You know, you have, you have boys with girlish tendencies and girls with boyish tendencies. What's the answer? We're going to carve them all up. You know, like, so we've got that going on. We've got immigrants pouring through the southern border. We have a monetary system that is widening the inequality gap at a record rate. So the middle and lower class, their quality of life is deteriorating at a rate and it hasn't probably at any point in history while the rich get richer. And the great thing about it is the authoritarian governments are sitting there telling you they're doing it to protect your interests and to make sure that the billionaires and the soon to be trillionaires are paying their fair share. Meanwhile, quantitative easing is directing hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of new liquidity towards the people who have it already and away from the have nots. And so, you know, Jeff Bezos gets another $200 billion and you have to buy one ply toilet paper instead of two ply toilet paper now because you can't afford it. So every time you got to wipe your ass, you get shit on your hands now. And the left is telling you, you know, we're doing what's right for you. By the way, we stopped Amazon from building a new headquarters in Long Island City. We're winning, you know. So it's clueless. We have a clueless world full of incompetent people don't understand capitalism and don't understand markets. And we are, I mean, we are moving swiftly in the wrong direction, probably at the quickest pace that we have been, at least in in my recent memory. Joe Biden, what can you say about Joe Biden? What can you say about Justin Trudeau? You know, I don't know, Tom, you know, like, so I honestly, I think, what am I doing? I'm not out here. You can say a lot, but unfortunately, there's not much of it that's going to be positive. And to your point about Javier Malay and a lot of these developments that we've seen over the last, let's say, two months here, I think this is really encouraging because it seems like people are starting to really understand that these socialist policies are going to be exactly that. They're going to have this incredibly negative effect on societies that have taken a lot of pride and a lot of work to get to where they have that have created a lot of wealth and well-being for hundreds of millions of people and they're destroying it and And finally push back against it what's his name in el salvador bukele is that his name the uh, the president of el salvador yeah i think his name is bukele Mm -hmm. you know he's got like a 95 percent approval rating. This is the guy that made Bitcoin legal tender and El Salvador cracked down on a lot of the gangs and has reduced crime, albeit I'm sure with a heavy hand, but the citizens are happy with him. And he's got like a 90% approval rating. And Ilhan Omar put out a tweet like, oh, we can't let him usurp democracy in El Salvador. And you look at the comments and it's all these people that are from El Salvador with El Salvador flags in their profile. Shut the fuck up and leave us alone. Like, we like this guy. Like, your country is the one that has cities where people are living in poverty and the drug problems and the crime problems, you know. Just leave us alone. We're fine in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. And that kind of stuff is encouraging, you know. It's the same with Argentina and Malay. You watch some of the things that this dude said in his run-up to the election, saying, well, you can't give shit libtards an inch, he said in the one public interview. It went Mm -hmm. viral, right? He's like, you can't give shit libtards an inch. And, you know, the famous interview where he's taking all the divisions of the government off the board, afuera, afuera, afuera. 
and he's pulling them all off the board. And like, the thing is he got elected because more people looked at that. Now those comments that maybe 20 years ago, people would have said, man, this guy seems a little unhinged, but Tom, they looked at it now and they said, this guy's right. This is what we need. He's right. You know, so the gate is swinging back in the other direction in a big way and getting elected, I think is a, it's a beacon of that. It's a, it's a sign of that. And so, you know, I'm encouraged by that. And I wrote an article, I forget what it's called, but I wrote an article just talking about how hopefully Argentina will become the shining beacon of what smaller government and libertarian policies can do. And now we'll just watch. Mm-hmm. Now we'll just watch. It'll get a little well, rockier, I'm sure, there, especially with their economy. But then at some point, it's going to bottom. And then and they're going to be rebuilding back in the image of liberty as opposed to the image of authoritarianism. And then that's where prosperity comes from. The only thing I was going to add to that is that, unfortunately, Argentina and the people of Argentina, I think, have you know, come to this realization that this is the direction that they need to go. There is going to be some right. pain and is going the to be just means. However, this is only after years and years of experiencing unbelievable inflation of their currency or devaluation of their currency, however you want to put it, and a lot of pain already. So, you know, unfortunately, these lessons take time and always that particular situation always comes back to that idea of, you know, good times create weak men. And we're unfortunately, as a Western society, I think we're really in that exact place where We've gotten to a place where we experienced so much growth and so much comfort that it seemed like as a society, we could do no wrong. So unfortunately, we're at a place where there's a lot of shit that has to get fixed that is and, going to take a lot of work and a lot of pain. And you know, we'll see that same kind of pain in the West. If we get four more years of Trudeau or we get four more years of Biden. It's going to hit a fever pitch, man. I mean, what do you want? You know, our cities are war zones in the United States. Mm-hmm. All right. I live in Philadelphia in an area of town that was nice 20 years ago. You know, like our cities have become war zones. The crime and the drug use is off the charts. Okay. We have entire large portions of our population that have essentially turned into zombies homeless zombies and they're everywhere they're not just in la and san francisco they're in philadelphia and they're in chicago and they're in you know new york and so we're just watching our country devolve into a third world country you can't even go to san francisco anymore tom san francisco years only when xi jinping is there though yeah and that's doesn't that just sum it up though doesn't that just sum it up beautifully that they could have fixed up that city, you know, the way that they did for his arrival at any point that they wanted. They turned that city around overnight. They had the people up off the streets and they had all the garbage in the shit cleaned up. And, you know, the Chinese flag waving from flagpoles. And, uh, you know, we can do it. We just choose not to. And, uh, and so... You know, we will, we can fuck around and find out with four more years of liberal policies if we like, if that's what it takes. Maybe we can pay $2 trillion a year in interest on the national debt. Maybe we can hire another 80,000 IRS agents. And maybe every U.S. home can have their own IRS agent that just sits there and monitors the bank account every day. 
you know, maybe we can let a million people a year pour through the border. Maybe we can let a million people a month pour through the border. You know, they're already, they're in the goddamn Roosevelt Hotel. We have nowhere to put these people. You got the president of our country standing at odds, the governor of Texas, who was trying to protect his state. Mm-hmm. Our president in the Supreme Court is telling Texas they can't defend their border. It's insanity. Meanwhile, if I go to Rainbow Bridge, if I'm in Niagara Falls, and I want to go over the bridge to Seneca Niagara Casino to put a bet on the Flyers game because uh, not Seneca Niagara, that's on the U.S. side, but Casino Niagara is on the is on the Canadian side. If I want to go cross the border to go over there and go to the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, mm-hmm. it's an hour-long inquisition about what I'm doing. I stop at that window and I'm accosted by border control. And I'm accosted on the way back in. It's the same like when I, you know, I go to Montreal, I show up at a Pierre Trudeau airport and I go through that customs line. There's a lot of questions being asked about where I'm doing, where I'm going, who I'm here to see, how long am I staying there? What's the phone number of the person I'm staying with? How long will I be in the city? How long this, how long that? Meanwhile, we're just, we're just letting people in. You know, I saw a photo of one of the airports that had one line that said, well, if you don't have a passport, just hop on this line. So, you know, U.S. citizens that are flying from Dallas to Kansas City are getting their balls groped by a TSA agent to make sure that we're not carrying a toothpaste bottle somewhere in our pants. Too big. That's too big, right? That's bigger than the approved side. Meanwhile, we're letting, you know, 100,000 random people whose names, locations we know nothing about pour in through the border. And then we're subsidizing them once they get here. We're giving them cell phones and putting them up at a four-star hotel. And we're shutting down our children's schools so that we have places for these people to go and sleep. It is outrageous. And it's out of control. And so I don't know how much longer we need to do that before the nation just throws in the towel and says we need something different. I got to tell you, I'm not surprised by the fact that Trump is polling the way that he is right now in the U.S., because I think people have just had enough. Those same people that 20 years ago would have said Javier Malay is a little bit much are now thinking, wow, this is exactly the attitude we need. And I think a lot of the same people, I think, well, you know, Trump, he's a little rough around the edges, but like, you know, would rather have somebody that's respected by world leaders. You don't think it's an accident that the Ukraine war and the October 7th attacks happened under the watch of Joe Biden, do you? Of course not. Those things wouldn't have happened with Trump in office because he's nuts. But like people would have said, ah, I don't want to try him. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Biden, he's another one. He just, he just can't hear the dinner bell. You know, he doesn't know what day of the week it is. He doesn't know what planet he's on. He can't put a sentence together. He can't find his way off the stage. He's a nightmare. He just, he's not lucid. So, you know, Trump may be crazy, but at least he's lucid. And I think people are people are starting to see that. And I think that's probably why he's polling better. So I don't know what the breaking point will be or how long it'll take the country to wake up. But what a time to be alive. I'm glad I'm already 41 years old and I don't have to sit through 80 more years of this, maybe hopefully just 20 or 30 more years, because by the time AI takes over, you know, I'll be ready to check out. I've seen enough already. So how's that for a nice optimistic note to end on? Well, unfortunately, 
optimism and reality are sometimes at odds, right? And as said often, trying to really understand where we are as a nation, as a world, where the monetary system is, I think it's way more helpful to analyze it as accurately as we can and take some steps to mitigate some of the possible outcomes of that situation. And we're not going to be worse off for doing that. And now you couple that with the idea that we're trying to understand the world for what it is rather than look at it through rose-colored glasses. I think we right. have to do that. That's the responsible thing to be doing. It's uncomfortable yeah, and it sucks. But- the world through rose-colored glasses, you're more than welcome to. You know, buy the SPY ETF and, you know, shake the hand of your Edward Jones advisor and put your child into a public school where they're putting essentially porn in the library. I mean, if you want to wear the rose-colored glasses, you can. I know a lot. Of, I live in a city, man. There's a lot of people here that are wearing the rose-colored glasses. You know, what's very funny is a lot of the people that I used to walk around my neighborhood, a lot of people had John Fetterman signs in their window, you know, pre the election and post the election, they kept them up. And the whole time he was going through the election for Senate, in 2022, I'm like, how can these people honestly be supporting this guy? You know, I mean, he seems like a nice person. I'm sure he's a great guy. He's had some setbacks, health, mental health wise, and we all have, and I empathize with him. But when you see him on the debate stage and he's standing across from Dr. Oz and Dr. Oz is at least lucid again, going, just going back to lucidity as a quality, he's at least lucid and John Fetterman can't put a sentence together. And these people are rallying around him. We, this is the guy we got to get in. You know, it's about just getting their vote in the seat that they want. And then to see this guy, I don't know what happened to him. He checked into a mental health facility and had a stroke and came out and had his head screwed on straight. But now he seems to be on the far right of the Democratic Party. And it's very funny to kind of watch the seeds that the people on the left have unwittingly sown for themselves with Mr. Fetterman. And what I can say is a lot of the signs that used to be up in these windows have come down. So, you know, I think people can do whatever they'd like. If they'd like to wear the rose-colored glasses, you know, for me, I'm just an observer. It's an interesting social and psychological experiment that I feel like I'm living every day. And other than talking to you and talking some shit on my podcast and writing my blog, I don't really talk about these issues with anybody. I don't talk about them at the bar. I don't talk about them with friends because I know how I feel about things. And for me, it's just about kicking back and just really watching exactly how it's all going to come crumbling down. And when I invest, that's what I think of. Where do I want to be that affords me the ability to kind of watch the world go up in flames and not suffer a complete and total loss? Mm-hmm. And for me, that's doomsday prepping and you know, owning gold, silver, miners, real estate, emerging markets, and Bitcoin. And so, you know, that's that. And people can laugh at me if they'd like. That's how I live, man. I try to live in reality. Well, Chris, I think that's a perfect way to wrap things up. Of course, for those that want any more of you, both the Raven Substack, we'll put that link to, what was it, 50% off for life, I think? That's six months. So if okay. you want to take six months as a paid subscriber, you get six months free. So essentially, it's 50% off. Awesome. Thanks, Chris, and look forward to doing this again soon and really trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah, Tom, it's always great to talk to you, man. And and I bet you in six months we'll get the itch, you know, do it again at some point. But 
just know for the next six months, I'll be a listener, man. I'm an avid listener. I love your show. I love the way that you host, the way that you let people like, you know, your guests and psychopaths like myself just ramble on endlessly. It's an art form and you've mastered it and really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. And, you know, I can't do it without you guys either, without being able to have interesting conversations like this all the time, doing the research that I do to make sure that I have these topics teed up ahead of time and being able to have these directions to head. I wouldn't be able to do it without you guys. So I'm, I'm just as grateful for you guys too. All right, let's take an early happy hour. I'll talk to you later, Tom. Happy Friday, Chris. See you, buddy. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.